This is Alex West from the Faculty of Horror, and we are podcasting from the Horrid Halls, but we took a wrong turn, and I don't know where we are, and despite what Andrea will say, this is my fault, and I'm sorry to Andrea's mom and my mom, and I'm just so scared. useless you didn't even know how to follow it oh, i thought you saw me do it oh my god there's a creek <laughs> you're such an asshole yeah i am but we made it we survived we're back and welcome to episode 20 of faculty of horror i'm andrea subasati and i'm still alex west and we're so happy that you're back with us for our special Halloween episode. And in case you haven't guessed, this episode is going to be looking at Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Merrick's 1999 found footage thriller, Game Changer, I could go on and on, and we're going to The Blair Witch Project. Okay, I got you. This is my home, which I am leaving the comforts of for the weekend to explore the Blair Witch. You've heard of the Blair Witch several times. I was laying down on the leaves, a pile of leaves, kind of watching my pool and looking up at the sky. Have you ever heard of the Blair Witch? And uh, all of a sudden I felt like something was near me. Right. You know, kind of a eerie feeling. What's your take on the Blair Witch at this point? Do you think she exists? I, don't know. I gave you back the map, I Heather. Gave you the map. I gave you back the map. I we're don't. lost. Admit that first, because we're uh, no, I know we're not lost. Hello. Hello. Holy shit. Oh my god, what the fuck is that? And it's all because of me that we're here now. Hungry. And cold. And hunted. footage is something we haven't talked about and it's a huge proponent of horror especially I would say in the last five years it's really come on its own obviously the Blair Witch was huge in 1999 there were a couple things that preceded that and I would say those are films like Ruggiero Diodato's 1980 film Cannibal Holocaust 
then the Blair Witch came around. It was huge. It was also, I would say, kind of preceded by TV specials like Fox's Alien Autopsy. Those, I think, played a part of it. Obviously, the big Survivor and reality TV craze hadn't hit, but you did have stuff on TV like The Real World, which had gone through several cycles. Now, The Blair Witch came around in 1999, and as Andrea said, it changed the game. It is still one of the most successful independent films ever made. And I think we'll see through the story, through the mythology that's created by the story, and the subsequent marketing campaign, it's very obvious why it's such this huge proponent in horror. Now, found footage kind of died off after that. There was never a really successful attempt to really bring it back to mainstream audiences until I would say 2007 with Oren Pelly's Paranormal Activity, which actually didn't get a wide release until 2009. Camera on my girlfriend Katie. She thinks there's something in the house. I don't know. You believe me, right? I think we're gonna have a very interesting time capturing whatever paranormal phenomena is occurring or is not occurring. Windows are locked, doors are locked, the alarm is on. Hearing a weird sound. Something's here. I feel it breathing on me. Footsteps in, but there's no footsteps out. Oh, God. Oh, my God. If you do try to play games with it, that's inviting it in. Jeez, looks like something big you. It's not the house, it's me. You cannot run from this, it will follow you. In control. You're not in control. What's happening to me? This thing left a message. If it's not a ghost, what is it? Now, in case you've been living under a rock, I suppose it bears mention what found footage is, and it is exactly as it sounds, is it's a film that's made up of pieces of footage that is supposedly recovered, footage that was lost because the filmmakers presumably something terrible happened to them. And in the case that Alex mentioned of Cannibal Holocaust, it was a film about an expedition of filmmakers who wanted to make a documentary about this so-called primitive tribe and they get attacked and they get killed and the big scandal surrounding this film was that Deodato and his production team actually paid their actors to disappear for a year go on vacation do whatever it is you need to do but you are not going to do any interviews you will not be reachable for this period of time and everyone's gonna think that you died and the hilarious thing is that this actually kind of backfired on them and Deodato and his crew went to court for murder. And they actually had to call upon these actors. They had to find them, drag them from their fantastical destinations to come appear in court and say, no, I'm alive. It's just a movie, you fucking idiots. Blurring the line between fact and fiction had serious consequences for the director when the Italian authorities put him on trial for the murder of the actors. 
Io che avevo fatto prima un contratto. I originally had a contract with the actors where they were asked to disappear for a year. But when I was in court on murder charges and things were going really badly, I had to bring one of them back to testify. Now, Blair Witch had its first official screening at the Sundance Film Festival earlier in 1999, and that created a huge stir. And right after that, they launched the website, BlairWitch.com, which still exists. It's still this kind of interesting but kind of archaic website, so it's actually really fun to go and look at. And as the hype and the buzz and the reviews came in, it became a really popular film. It became kind of, if you're really into film in 1999, This was the film you went to see because it was so different. It totally took away the slick gloss of Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer and all of those reinventive horror films and retreads that were coming out during the mid to late 90s. This was a bare bones, unglamorous, terrifying film, at least to me anyway. I remember going to see it in the theaters and then I, I stopped by a kind of local drugstore, Shoppers Drug Mart if you're in Canada, and seeing the Time magazine cover with Josh, Heather and Mike on it. And obviously everyone I thought knew that this was a fake movie, like it, it totally effective, but completely fake. And it wasn't until I was actually doing my master's degree and I had started bringing in horror films and especially horror films that purport to be true into my paper and I had to do a presentation to my seminar class about where I'm at with my paper and you know the research I was doing and this, that and the other and everyone was doing them. And I remember when I got to talking about the Blair Witch Project, I said something like, and, and so now I'll be talking a little bit about the Blair Witch Project, which of course everyone knows was faked. And I remember this girl in my class looked up from her computer and just went, it was? And this was a girl in like, you know, a performance theory class that had no idea that the Blair Witch Project was a completely fictional film. And so apparently it still kind of holds water. Now, my experience with seeing this film, I actually saw it with my family. I saw it with my parents and at least one of my sisters in the theater. And it's momentous because that really doesn't happen in my family. It must have been a particularly tense day at the Subasati household that we decided to go check out a movie. And there was tremendous hype about the Blair Witch Project. But the hype was largely centered around whether or not the events of this film were real. So I felt like I went into the film sitting down looking for reasons to think it was real or reasons to think it wasn't real. And as a result, the overall effect was kind of lost on me. I walked out of it being like, yeah, yeah, it's totally fake. And that was the position I took. And it's such a shame because watching it now, what a terrifying, immersive, excellent film it is. But that controversy about real or not actually really hurt the film, in my opinion. And I really wish that more film marketers would steer away from that because we don't need it to be real for it to scare us. And another reason I think reactions to this film were a little divided upon its mainstream release is because, as you were saying, the horror films that were coming out of Hollywood in the late 90s were substantially different. Very Hollywood, very glossy, very teen, and a lot of jump scares. And you're not going to get that with this film at all. 
And I don't even think you get that with a lot of other found footage films. The, obviously, the big one I mentioned before, Paranormal Activity, that whole series, as well as a film like Wreck and Wreck 2, both of which I really, really love, they're very much scare to scare to scare. I think the Blair Witch Project really works because of that sense of dread, that impending doom that just permeates the whole film. It's almost tactile and palpable. You just feel it in your bones that these bad things are going to happen. And the characters constantly joke, especially in the opening parts of the film, when they're talking to the local people of Burkittsville. They're always being warned not to do it, and there are all these signs that they shouldn't be there, but they keep going. I feel like it's a film that you really need to put yourself into, and it's a film that's not going to do the work for you. And every time I say that, I laugh at myself because I caught a film a couple of years ago where the director was in attendance, and he did this intro, and he went off about how the film's not going to do the work for you. You really have to put yourself in the film, and the film was such a piece of shit that that opening made him seem like such an arrogant prick. And he's got a new movie coming out soon that I will just absolutely not see because... By and large, if you have to work too hard for a film to make sense, then fuck that film. But this movie, you just need to imagine this isolation and put yourself there and get the living shit scared out of you. And I think that's what The Blair Witch Project does so brilliantly, is it's almost complete lack of traditional narrative. It tries to structure itself as a documentary, and... The whole film is about a documentary shoot falling apart in the most spectacular ways. It takes these different journeys. So it takes the journey of this kind of set route uh, documentary film production, and then it dissolves into them getting lost and encountering stranger and stranger things until it reaches the final moments when I think it actually legitimately becomes a horror film. Until then, it's this series of things that just aren't right. So I hope you've all seen the film. If not, this podcast is going to contain tremendous spoilers. You know, I think I feel like we say that in every podcast episode because we do talk about a film front to back and we mention all the plot points. I've never had someone come and complain about spoilers, but let's not have this be the first time, shall we? Let's not start now. It's Halloween, you guys. Cut us some slack. So basically, The Blair Witch Project is the story of three amateur student filmmakers. We've got Heather, Joshua, and Mike. And what they do is they travel to the Black Hills near Burkittsville, Maryland, and they start interviewing locals. And the locals start telling them about how the woods are haunted. And this is depicted in a very realistic, small-town gossip kind of way. And from what I understand, some of these locals were planted and prodded, and some of them just made up some shit on the spot. So they learn of a hermit named Rustin Parr, who was a creepy old hermit who lived up in the woods, and he kidnapped and killed a bunch of kids, and he claimed afterward that he was possessed of a spirit of one Ellie Kedward, who was tried and convicted of being a witch back in the 18th century, and she was banished into the woods in the wintertime. And so the whole myth is that this is Ellie taking her vengeance out on the townspeople by murdering their children. So after gathering all this background information, they head out to the woods to find some of the major sites, including a cemetery, but also Coffin Rock, which is where a group of rescuers were found bound together and murdered. And I think it also goes to say, as part of the Blair Witch mythology, which is extrapolated in the website and the TV special, The Curse of the Blair Witch, was that... 
the Blair Witch, the name, comes from the original town of Blair. And then when Ellie Kedward was left in the woods in a particularly harsh winter, then the next season when children started going missing, those settlers basically up and left because they did not want to fuck with L.A. Kedward. And decades you know, or so later, the town was refounded as Burkittsville. So that's when you know, the Rustin Parr story comes about. And that sense that that malevolent spirit didn't end with Blair. It's carried on. So Heather, Mike, and Josh head out into the woods with their map, and they find the cemetery, and isn't this cool? And they find Coffin Rock, and then they decide to camp out. It's not until the second night that they're awakened in the night with frightening sounds. And when they wake up, there are these weird rock formations that have somehow built up around their campsite, surrounding it, like a bit too structured to be a coincidence. Eventually, they start getting lost. They think they're heading in one straight direction, but they're retracing their steps. The map goes missing, which is a great little scene that we alluded to in our hilarious little intro. Stick figures start appearing, stick figures in a crazy Blair Witch formation that has become the icon of the film and the film's whole mythology. And then eventually Josh disappears. By now, they're out in the woods way longer than they had planned to be. They're out of food. More importantly, they're out of cigarettes. And more importantly than that, they're pretty much at each other's throats, especially Heather and Mike. Now, when Josh disappears, they set out looking for him and they hear him screaming at night, but they can't find him till eventually they stumble upon a really rundown house all of a sudden in the middle of the woods that they've been wandering for days and they hadn't seen before that. So they run into the house. They're searching it frantically because they can still hear Josh. And at the very end, they run down into the cellar. We see Mike's perspective, and then he drops the camera. And then we see Heather's perspective, and we can see Mike standing in the corner just the way the legend goes, and then Heather's camera goes dead. Now, Alex and I are both taking a moment to shake off our chills. If you have seen this film and you're listening to this podcast, I really hope it reached you the way it reached us because it's such a rewarding scare. It's such a climax without cheap jump scare conventions, and I respect that and I appreciate it so much. I know the film really terrifies me, and I think it speaks so much to what the filmmakers and the actors were able to pull out of themselves in this story and create moments of real terror and horror without a music build, without jump cuts, without all of those conventions and tropes that we're so used to and that still work on a lot of films. But this film was so different and it was so unsettling. And the fact that you never see what Heather and Mike are screaming at at the end is just... It's horrifying because that's when you let your imagination run with you. And I think if you have that kind of imagination where you're willing to let yourself go and really picture those things, it could be your biggest nightmare that you can never confirm or deny. Now, one of the things I think is really fascinating about this film is its approach to the attempt at debunking folklore or an urban legend. There's obviously a big stigma, as some of you might know, about the horror genre, and people think it's kind of lame or it's kind of dumb. Obviously, we don't, and we don't think you do either, but a lot of people kind of write it off, and they go to academics and different People who say it's dumb, it's lame, it's cheap scares, it's always the same thing, but we know that's not true. So what I think is really fascinating about the Blair Witch Project and what a lot of found footage has really taken upon itself is the idea of someone or some group thinking that they are knowing and more advanced than what they're about to approach. And when they approach it and when they are in it, they get lost and they succumb to it. So the Blair Witch Project as a piece of folklore 
it's this piece of mythology that just existed within Maryland and maybe in you know folklore scholar books. But it was Heather, Mike, and Josh going to make this student film about it and really trying to document the different areas and different places that led them to become part of the mythology and allowed it to spread beyond Maryland. Whether you believed in it or not, it became a worldwide phenomenon. So it's the idea of something that is very local and communal that is left alone and the locals know not to go into the woods, that these three outsiders who think they know more than the locals approach and fall victim to. Heather and her crew are a little bit condescending now and then when it comes to some of the locals. I mean, a couple of the fellas that they interview are old boys literally in the middle of fishing. But I think they actually give the most useful information when it comes to uh, local interviews. There's a lady who's carrying a small girl who all of a sudden in the middle of the interview gets really upset and starts clapping her hand over her mother's mouth and saying, No! The Uh-oh. creepiest story <laughs> kind of about moment, her that I ever heard was that two men were out hunting uh-huh. and they were camped near the cabin or something that she's supposed to haunt. No, uh-huh. no. And they disappeared off the face of the earth. No. Really? Okay, it's all right, Ingrid. I'm just telling a scary story, but it's not true. That woman and that child, I always think of because when I get really scared by a horror movie, I think of that woman when she just says, yeah, I believe enough not to go up there. <laughs> And that's enough. Like, I believe enough not to look under my bed at night. And then they interview this one lady who definitely looks like she's got a couple of screws loose. She's the one who's giving the most lucid description of this Blair Witch-style monster who's covered head to toe in hair. And and she seems really loopy. But later, when they're lost in the woods, they are calling upon this information as desperately as they can. But what's interesting to me is that none of their information really helps them. There's nothing in the legend of Ellie Kedward that would lend itself to the little stick dolls or the little stone cairns or Ellie's ability to manipulate the forest such that they can't find their way. They really don't know anything going into it. They have conjecture, but the conjecture is largely unhelpful. And what they're dealing with is actually a fair bit more terrifying than that lady describing a woman in a fursuit. It it was like a woman. Only on her arm, on her hands and everything, it was like hair, like a real dark, almost black hair. Uh-huh. Like, like a horse. Like fur? Yeah, like a fur, like horse fur. And I actually happened to pick up a book in the last week at this great little rare antique bookstore in Toronto called Monkey's Paw. And if you're ever in Toronto, I highly recommend checking it out. I found this book, and it's called The World of the Witches. And it's from 1961, and it's a great history of witches. And what I thought was really fascinating, and I was reading the introduction and the preface and all of this, was the author makes a really great distinction in that the history of witches is told by the people who believed that these women were witches, not by the actual witches themselves. So there is a sense of the story being told from the outsider, and what we have in The Blair Witch is three people going into the woods, going into this witch's territory, and having to experience her world on her terms. I just gave myself chills. You take the mic. I think another aspect of this film that's particularly chilling is even the idea of modern teenagers getting lost in the woods is so fucked up and so chilling. I think North Americans, we are so spoiled. Well, Heather says that at one point. She says it's very difficult to get lost in America these days. 
It's very hard to get lost in America these days, and it's even harder to stay lost. So we have that on our side. And they managed to. That's so fucked up. Yeah, exactly. They came as prepared as they could be. They've got their map. They've got their compass. But I think largely they were unprepared for the possibility of getting lost. And so when Heather says that and then they're trudging along singing the Star Spangled Banner, I feel like it's a really poignant look at how not only do North Americans believe that nothing can touch them in terms of getting lost in the woods, but they feel so insulated by this secular and non-believing society. Not possible in this country. Not, not possible. possible. Because oh, this is America and it's not possible. We've destroyed America, most of our natural resources. Let's just keep going. America. God show your grace on me! And some of the reading I've done in my research of the Blair Witch Project really pinpoints the year it came out, which is 1999. So that is two years before 9-11, which we've talked a bit about before on this podcast, is this hugely eye-opening wake-up call for America. And the fact that they never really knew what was going on within their borders or outside of their borders and what has happened since. There's still a lot of confusion, a lot of hurt, a lot of anger around that tragedy. And some of the readings I've done on this film have pinpointed that moment of the Blair Witch isolating that fear of not knowing where you are when you think you have control over it and being given the illusion of control in your whole life that you can get a map and drive around and figure it all out and you'll be totally fine. And they even talk about it in the film the first day when they realize they're not going to get back to the car. They have this conversation. Because at this point... When you're not home today, when I'm not home today, people are going to start noticing. Like, my de- my girlfriend's definitely going to notice right. that I'm not back today and that I haven't fucking called. I mean, if I called, it would be one thing. But, you know, if I just get back, right. like, don't get back, period, and I don't call, she's going to notice, which means that by tonight, if we haven't found shit, someone's going to be looking for us. They kind of keep saying that sense of safety, that they're going to get out of this and they're going to be okay. And it's not until Heather gives that really iconic monologue to the camera where she just apologizes for everything that's happened. That's when I remember as an audience member feeling really lost along with this film. And it was a really amazing feeling because it was so unusual. You're usually held by the hand by a narrative and by a director who's going to take you by all these kind of standard tropes and you're going to tick them off one by one. And this film just eschews all of them. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened. Because in spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault. Because it was my project. And I insisted. I insisted on everything. I insisted that we weren't lost. I insisted that we keep going. I insisted that we walk south. Everything had to be my way. And this is where we've ended up. And it's all because of me that we're here now. Hungry. And cold. And hunted. That's right. That scene was very poignant, especially coming from Heather, who was so stubbornly insisting that she knew where she was going. She knew what she was doing. This is my film. This is my, I'm in control of this. And then for her to finally break down and have that really candid moment was a very poignant thing. 
Now, I wanted to ask you something, Andrea, and we haven't talked about this before, but there is a lot of talk around when the film came out that Heather was a bitch and she's angry and she's stupid and she's lame and, and all this stuff because she kind of keeps saying she knows where she is and, and maybe she was a bit lost, but now she's back on track and she's got the map and who took the map and, and why don't we have the map? And, and Mike and Josh really blame her. They're really angry at her a lot of the time. And especially Mike, it starts very early on with him. Now, I've watched this movie like, gosh, probably once a year <laughs> since it came out. And the older I get the more I think I'd, I feel like I'd be just like Heather. You're with these two kind of, sure, very nice, you know, stoner slackers who probably don't seem to have it really together in the organization department. And I would, I would just put on that facade of like, I've got it together, just listen to me and we'll be fine. And so I don't see her as kind of an anti-feminist or, you know, an angry woman or a bad woman at all. I think she's a young woman just trying to survive in a situation where she doesn't have the resources she needs. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think when I first saw this as a kid, maybe I did see her as a bitch and I did also blame her for leading the whole thing astray, even though it's fully revealed that Mike is the one who lost the map. But it's it's only after growing up a bit and looking back on it and knowing that a large part of leadership is bullshit. And when you are in charge, you can't let people know that you don't know where you're going. You have to put on the brave face. Rewatching this film, I thought, in spite of her own fear and terror and panic, she held it together for as long as she humanly could have. And then when they turned around and attacked her, she was actually pretty quick to forgive. So I thought she was an amazing character, an amazing leader, and I was really able to relate to her a lot. And as I said, I've watched this movie a lot. And one of the scenes that struck me most when I rewatched it to do this episode was after Josh has gone missing and Mike uh, is trying to pull it together and he's kind of rocking back and forth, but he's found cigarettes, so they might be okay. And Heather's kind of filming him and then she puts down the camera and actually sits next to him and they sit and they smoke and then it cuts to them just kind of like with their arms around each other. And it's a really poignant moment and it's actually a very human moment and a very quiet moment which I think is so rare in horror or genre films when you feel a real moment of humanity like that and I think that's actually pretty brilliant I'm always I'm just so happy that they kept that moment in the film because you really build that bond with those characters yeah the editing in this film was simply brilliant and when you know how loosely the narrative was constructed from a production standpoint, which I'm sure we'll get into shortly, I can only imagine the loads and loads of clips of crap these directors had to go through. So the fact that they were able to find the moments like that and portray them as moments like that in this cohesive narrative is really a tremendous feat. But to speak to what you said about Heather putting the camera down, that in and of itself was a really big deal because a lot of the infighting that went on up till then had to do with Heather's refusal to stop filming. I can't believe we have to leave this when shit's happening. Heather, put the fucking camera down. Let's pack up the tent. Let's get okay, hang on. Okay. Now, at one point, and in an especially deep moment, Heather just says, quite matter-of-factly, it's all I fucking have left. And I feel like that line is really interesting for a variety of reasons. I think on a certain level, they realize that they were lost, and they might not come out of here, and this is something that could ostensibly document their journey and maybe help them get found, alive or dead. It's something that's going to live on after them. But 
there's also, as Josh illustrates, a sense of unreality, a sense of distance with what's happening to them that kind of enabled Heather to have that brave face that we were just talking about. The fact that she's behind the camera, she's in charge, she's in control, not of what she's filming, but of the lens through which they're seeing it, which I think was a really important theme throughout this film. You see why you like this video camera so much. You do? It's not quite reality. Reality it's, says we gotta move. No, but it's totally like a filtered reality, man. It's like you can pretend everything's not quite the way it is. I think you touched on what for me is one of the most important points of this film, especially looking at it from an academic point of view or an analytical point of view, which is that these filmmakers, these kids, all they have are these two video cameras. That is all that will remain of them. And I think they realize that about a bit past halfway through the film, maybe three quarters of the way through the film, that becomes very much a reality to them. And that's why Heather uses the camera to record her apology if you haven't watched The Blair Witch Project recently, I would encourage you to go back and watch it and really take note of the two different types of film they use. Now, they've got the 16 mil, which is their black and white. That's the all important. That's what they're going to shoot the film on. And then they've got the kind of handheld video camera, which is the color film. And the color film is meant to be, you know, Heather picking up shots and, and just kind of filming the whole experience, maybe for herself, maybe for fun, maybe for notes later. Who knows? And what this film does, and it's very similar to what Diodato did with Cannibal Holocaust, is that it illustrates the difference between the clipped notion of what an edited documentary could be and what the reality of it is. So when you see something through the 16 millimeter black and white, especially early on in the film, it's Heather being filmed and she's working off of probably something she'd written before and she's giving very clipped speech. This is Burkittsville formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town. Much like a small, quiet town anywhere. And then it cuts to moments later in the film when, you know, they're shooting in the car and they're celebrating their first shot. Well, we have shot the first scene, the cemetery scene. The opening is shot. And there's such a difference in tone that you understand there are these parallel films going on at the same time. And the deeper they get into the woods, the more these films merge. And especially as soon as Josh goes missing, that's when both Heather and Mike have the camera. So that's why you get that really great duality, especially in the end scene when you're seeing those horrific final moments through two very different viewpoints. Now... There is one moment I wanted to mention briefly, which I think is really interesting. So they're lost in the woods. They're starting to realize everything's really bad and they might not get out. And then they stumble across all of those stick figurines. The second you think Heather's kind of maybe just in a survival mode, she immediately starts yelling for them to get it on 16 mil. That's it, Heather. Heather, you got enough, man. Let's go. That's enough! Stop taping! Enough. Please stop enough. taping! Okay. Okay, okay, okay. We're leaving right now. Okay, okay, we're out of here. We're out of here. I'm leaving. Come on, turn it off! So there's still a sense that this movie has to be made, that there's something driving them. And I think that's because their lives are now entwined with the narrative. 
so one of the most amazing things about the Blair Witch is the parallel stories. And I would say those two parallel stories for me are, so you've got the one story of the three filmmakers going missing. They start shooting the film and they get lost. The second parallel storyline is the mythology of the Blair Witch being explored, being documented, and finally, both Heather and Mike are being led to this cataclysmic climax of this house. It's the moment the Blair Witch wanted them to see, and now they finally got there, and that's why they're able to shoot it. And those hysterical final moments are when those two narratives merge, and they kind of combust in on each other, and we are left more uncertain than we were in the beginning. And we're both having chills again. Give us a moment, would you? As we've kind of mentioned already, this film had a very unconventional production scheme. We've got some directors who have an idea in their head of what they want this to look like, and they needed to audition three very special leads, because not only are these leads going to have to go through hell, camping in the woods, we've already talked about how I feel about camping, that is hell on earth, even if you're not being terrorized by a fucking witch, but... Their scenes were largely unscripted. They were deposited in the woods. They were each given a little instruction packet every single day with a loose instructions of a narrative they were to follow. Okay, you're starting to lose your temper. Heather's being a bit of a bitch. There's no fucking cigarettes. And then the map goes missing. And they take these cues and were able to turn them into these really realistic conversations. The dialogue between them flows and is always consistent with character that these three leads did a tremendous job with very, very little. It almost, from my understanding, played out a bit like one of those murder mystery games. Like when you each get your individual card and it's got your little secret or something you have to hide or, oh no, you're the murderer. Uh, My understanding was they had the realization that the map went missing, but Mike had his own little card or a little note that said you kicked the map into the river, or you got rid of the map. So he had that in his back pocket and had to play that eventually. And that whole thing is such, for me, it's so well played. And it's, you know, this kind of horrific realization and and this nasty fight that happens after it. You feel their desperation and their anxiety over it, which is so much more credible and real. I also love that apparently the director's, And some of the production crew and art designer, their word when um, the three actors were in their tent was taco. And that meant they were out setting things, so not to come out of a tent. And they often had to reset or the actors would go off course because they would actually get lost or they'd come across a road, like a real paved road, and have to just kind of like walk away from that and like joke about it and then keep shooting. So I think being left alone to play out this long form improv and having your directors and like this small crew follow you around and trying to make sure everything happens is it's just incredible that this film got made to the degree and the quality that it did. And from what I understand, the actors were given pretty little to eat, apart from the fact that they're filming all day, they have to deal with a bunch of shit at night. They're only given like a power bar and some fruit and some water every day. Can you imagine hearing taco? Be like, fuck you, taco. I want a taco. And my other favorite factoid, which we were talking about earlier with the character of Mary Brown, who is the old woman who they interview, he describes the Blair Witch and having this encounter with her when she was a child. And one of the things I read, and and they mention it in the commentary on the DVD, is that they put out a call for interns at the local film school, and the only person to apply was that woman. And she was the only person who wanted to be an intern on the film, and I assume she, or hopefully, helped out in a couple ways, but they actually wound up using her as this Mary Brown figure, and it's a very authentic 
scene in the film. And I think you really get that quality of what I was mentioning earlier of the fakeness of the documentary film versus their real opinions of Mary Brown. Thank God she's not in the film business, Mary. Can you imagine? She thinks with she her? is in the film business. Oh she also God. says she's a ballerina. Get she out. says she's a historian writing a book on American history, that. and that she does. She's a scientist who does research at the Department of Energy. And I feel like we've said this a dozen times before on the podcast. We pick movies that are meaningful to us or that we feel are meaningful to the genre and worthy of some intellectual analysis. But a lot of the times when we're talking about these movies, there is just this weird serendipitous magic that happens, you know? A lot of the best movies that we talk about on this podcast are movies that really shouldn't have been that great, that should have been train wrecks, but turned out to be amazing. And this film is one such success story of just an amazing cast. And like I said, whew, having done some editing on this podcast, it's a Rumpelstiltskin kind of situation where you're turning hay into gold. And I can only imagine what those guys must have combed through to pull out such wonderful performances in such a tremendous film. So the Blair Witch Project had its wide release in the summer of 1999. Andrea and I both saw it in theaters in different cities in Ontario. Little did we know one day we'd actually be talking about this together one night. But it became this huge phenomenon. And as I'd already mentioned earlier in this episode, the actors, Heather, Mike, and Josh, were on the cover of Time and Newsweek. And so were Dan Murek and Eduardo Sanchez. It was this huge thing. It was this huge out-of-the-blue film phenomenon that really captured the imagination of audiences and the industry. It was this really exciting thing of this film that cost you know less than fifty thousand dollars to make and it went on to gross over 200 million dollars that was huge now of course there were a lot of tie-ins to this film to help perpetuate the myth and and the life and the longevity of it and one of which i've already mentioned which is the curse of the blair witch which i believe is included on the dvd i know i had a vhs of it uh, I think you might even be able to stream it online if you know how to do those kind of things, which we absolutely don't. And that is a really, really great extra textual resource if you're interested in this film. If you saw it a long time ago or if you've never seen it, I totally recommend checking it out. I also had the official Blair Witch casebook, which was a fictional detective that Heather's family hired to go through all this evidence and random things that were created, I'm sure, by the marketing company. But I ate that book up. I thought it was fascinating. I was sure I'd find a clue in there, even though I knew it was totally fake. But I was a kid. What did I know? Tell them about how you tried to make the stick doll. <laughs> Um, so when I was a kid, I was totally into the Blair Witch, and like I said, I already had the book, and I maybe taped that special off of TV as well as bought the official VHS, and even though I was terrified of it, I really wanted to build one of those stick figures, so I set out into the small backyard in my parents' house and collected sticks, and they were all too big, so I remember my dad with his X-Acto knife helping me cut them down, and he watched me try to bind them up. And I was like, I had my Blair Witch case book out and I was trying to match the little figurine and I was trying to do that. And my dad very helpfully over my shoulder said, honey, I think that needs glue. And I said, they didn't have glue in the forest, dad, so I won't have glue now. Needless to say, the stick figure project was very quickly abandoned. 
there is a, another very embarrassing piece of Blair Witch merchandise, which I also spent my allowance money on, and that was Josh's Blair Witch Mix. And it was a real CD that you could buy, and it is still on Amazon, and I wish I still had my copy. But it was like Skinny Puppy and some more gothy bands and more electronic bands. That was a big introduction for me to some of those artists and that whole genre of music. But if it had a Blair Witch on it, I fucking bought it. I certainly didn't buy anything Blair Witch themed. I do remember I was working at Future Shop at the time. And by the time the Blair Witch Project came out on DVD, we had these little giveaways that you were supposed to give out at the point of purchase. But we weren't cashiers at Future Shop. We worked in the music department. We were rock stars. So fuck that. So we just kept everything that they gave us. And I had this little keychain flashlight with the Blair Witch stick figurine on it. And I cherished that thing just because it was a cool symbol. And I liked the movie. And it lit my way, I guess. I don't know. If you're ever lost in the woods and you've got this stupid little keychain, could save a life one day. What was the moment you actually realized you liked the film? Because you mentioned when you first saw it that you were really concerned with whether it was real or not. But what was the turning point for you? I, it's hard to say. I guess I rewatched it eventually and was able to muster the kind of empathy that made it terrifying. And I had that experience with a lot, a lot of films. There were films that I watched a thousand times as a little kid that I watched again as an adult and read totally differently. So I think I had a horror film renaissance when I turned like 26. And I was like, I need to see all of these again. And they were scarier. The Shining was scarier. The Exorcist was scarier. A lot of these psychological films that require you to do a little bit of work and have a little bit of empathy, I was able to do that at that point. So... I guess that was the turning point for me. So if you haven't seen this since all the hype was happening, and if you sat in the theater like me, preoccupied with, oh, this is fake. Well, fuck that. We know it's fake. Spoiler alert, this movie is fake. It's a movie. But uh, give it another shot and see if you have a different reading like I did. And if you have motion sickness, maybe take some gravel. Obviously, Hollywood isn't Hollywood unless it tries to capitalize on a really big success story, and The Blair Witch Project was like the biggest success story. The other big horror film to come out in 1999 was M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense, and that was a very slick, classic, narrative horror film, with it, which I think still has a lot of merits, but it was very staid, except for that twist, which we all know now. I see dead people. So, of course, if something is successful, you want to repeat it, and you want to repeat it again and again and again. Now, what Artisan, the film company or the distributor, wanted to do was make a sequel. I think, very smartly, Eduardo Sanchez and Dan Murek, from what I understand, said, shit, we've got less than a year to pull this together for a Halloween 2000 release no, but we really want to work on the mythology and, and all of that, so we'd be interested in working on something down the line. Artisan really wanted to push that out to an audience that was ready and willing to spend their hard-earned money on going to the cinema. So then you have The Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. Last summer, after the crowds left... Five strangers returned to the woods to uncover the truth. But one of them has a secret that will unlock the curse. You know, if you don't believe in the Blair Witch, then why the hell did you bother to come? I thought the movie was cool. This fall, just in time for Halloween, the witch is back. 
27th, forget everything you've heard. Forget everything you've seen. Because this time, the truth is scarier than fiction. <laughs> A brutal murder in the Black Hills discovered today. In the past year, the Black Hills area has been overrun with movie fans wanting to get a glimpse of where the Blair Witch Project was filmed. Yeah, it's a real film. It's a weird film. It's a strange film. It doesn't really make sense as a film. It's it's great if you're drunk, I'll say that. How would you know a thing like that? No reason. I admit, dear listeners, I did not give this one a watch. I got my hands on it, but I just couldn't seem to bring myself to do it. I knew we'd be talking about it, so I owe you an apology for that. Alex is going to have to take the helm on this one, but from what I hear, I didn't miss much. Well, it actually starts with a really interesting conceit, and that's a year after The Blair Witch was released... Burkittsville, Maryland, has been overrun by fans of the Blair Witch Project who only want to seek out and go into the woods and have this experience and see if they can capture the essence of the Blair Witch. So a lot of people in Burkittsville have kind of made this tourist trap organization where they're leading people out into the woods and taking them on camping sites and they have dueling tours and they get in fights over it. And so we follow this one group and it completely drops the found footage conceit and is shot like an omniscient narrative film. And you have this one group of random misfits who all get together and go out into the woods for this Blair Witch experience. And then they maybe get possessed by the Blair Witch and maybe have an orgy or maybe don't have an orgy or maybe it's all in their heads. I don't know, you guys. But it starts as a really interesting view of capitalizing on an artistic idea and trying to make a lot of money off of it and then it all going horribly wrong. As an idea, I think it's actually really interesting. In the execution, it totally fails. Now, what I've read is that Eduardo Sanchez and Dan Merrick were still, until recently at least, and I'm sure maybe still are, interested in revisiting the Blair Witch mythology. And, you know, there were computer games. Maybe I had one of them. I had the computer game that went with the Ellie Kedward legend. So it was a witch hunter looking for Ellie Kedward and you were the witch hunter. And I believe there was a second computer game where it was the whole Rustin Parr fiasco in Burkittsville. Now, my understanding is Merrick and Sanchez wanted to go back and actually do an omniscient narrative film which explores the initial supernatural happenings that happened after she was removed from the town of Blair. Now, there was some interest, especially by artisan films and the initial film companies and investors who were involved, but it's a lot more expensive to shoot a period piece than it is a found footage horror film. So I think there were some problems with funding, the fact that it had been so long since The Blair Witch came out. They just weren't sure that there was an audience for this kind of film. So I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I, I know if they made it, I'd still love to see it. Well, we are standing right in the eye of the remake storm, so I really wouldn't be surprised if it happened. 
I think for someone to take on funding another Blair Witch project, they would have a lot of money to throw at it and therefore would have a lot of say in what goes on and that doesn't tend to bode well for movies such as these. And I think if you're like us and you just find the idea of the Blair Witch or Ellie Kedward really scary, then maybe a movie about her wouldn't be as scary. But I would love to see what these two directors still had to say about this mythology because they did build up this really rich and intriguing world. So before we wrap up, speaking of films that need a little bit of funding help but don't really want to get it from the bigwigs that'll just fuck up the picture, it so happens that a close friend of Alex and mine is working on fundraising for a body horror short called Ink. Now, the lady's name is Ashley Wessel. She is a tremendously gifted visual artist and photographer. If you happen to have me on Facebook and you've seen some really stylized, almost comic book painting look like photos of me, they were by Ashley. She is an incredibly, incredibly gifted eye. And she's looking to make her first horror film, and we couldn't be more excited about it. And Ashley has been a good friend and supporter of the Faculty of Horror and basically everything I've ever done in horror. She's known Alex for a long time, too, and she's working on her first film, and she needs your help. So I strongly encourage you to go check out her Indiegogo campaign. It's called Ink. The film is called Ink, I-N-K. So you can go check out the Indiegogo website, and if you're able to salvage a couple of bucks and throw it at the film, that'd be great, but a couple of shares wouldn't hurt either, and we'd really appreciate it. No, it's true. I shared it and donated, and it didn't hurt me at all. And as an added little tidbit slash teaser slash nugget of things yet to come, Alex and I have been in communication with Ashley on collaborating on a little faculty of horror project pretty soon so be on the lookout for that check out her campaign and stay tuned for more just a reminder that we still have our contest going till the end of this year so till december 31st 2014 all you have to do is leave us a review on itunes we recommend five stars but you can put whatever you want and then all you have to do is you have to email us at info at facultyofhorror.com let us know what your username is on iTunes and what country you are reviewing from. So that's it for another Faculty of Horror episode. We're still a little bit lost in the hard halls, but I've got Andrea and we'll, we'll just figure it out. We're going to keep walking. Andrea, what, what was the bad witch from Wizard of Oz? I think that was East. Okay, so we're going to head west. And hopefully we will see you next time on the Faculty of Horror Happy Halloween. Have a great time. Until then, office hours are closed. In this sturdy old part of the city, where the sun refused to shine, people tell me there ain't no use in trying.